your way back to your seats if you're in the room today. Good morning, good morning. Well, if I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Tyson. I'm one of the pastors on the team here at Callwood Church, and I'm glad that you're joining us today. Uh, if this is the first Sunday that you've been with us, or maybe you haven't been with us for a, a little while, we are in a series called Not As It Seems. And it's a study on the book of Revelation. And we've been in this for a couple months now. And today we get to chapters 8 and 9 in Revelation. And near the beginning of the book in chapter 1 of Revelation, we read these words. Blessed is the one who reads and those who hear the words of prophecy and heeds the things which are written in it, for the time is near. So today we're going to jump right into the text because Revelation 1 says you will be blessed by hearing it. Are you on board with that? Well, get ready. It's a good one today, folks. It's a bit, a, long, bit of a long chunk of scripture, so bear with me. Revelation 8 and 9, if you don't have, it, uh, have a Bible with you, it'll be on the screens for you to follow along with me. It starts by saying this. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand in the presence of God. Seven trumpets were given to them, and another angel with a golden incense burner came and stood at the altar. He was given a large amount of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints and golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up in the presence of God from the angel's hand. The angel took the incense burner, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it to the earth. There was peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning, and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood were hurled to the earth. So a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and the grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain ablaze with fire was hurled into the sea. So a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures of the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star blazing like a torch fell from heaven. It fell a third of the rivers and springs of water. So the name of the star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood. So many of the people died from the waters because they had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. So I looked, and I heard an eagle flying overhead, crying out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to all those who live on earth because of the remaining trumpet blasts with the three angels are about to sound. All right, look to your neighbor and say, We're about halfway. It's a good day to be in church. Come on. If this is your first Sunday, you're like, what am I here for? Okay. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from heaven. The key for the shaft to the abyss was given to him. He opened the shaft to the abyss, and smoke came out of a shaft of smoke from a great furnace, so that the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the shaft. Then locusts came out from the smoke on the earth, and power was given to them like the power the scorpions have on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant, or any tree, but only those people who do not have God's seal on their foreheads. They were not permitted to kill them, but were only to torment them for five months. Their torment is like the torment caused by a scorpion when it stings someone. In those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee them. The appearance of locusts was like horses prepared for battle. 
Something like golden crowns was on their heads. Their faces were like human faces. They had hair like women's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth, and they had chests like iron breastplates. The sound of their wings was like so many chariots with rushing horses in, with horses rushing into battle, and they had tails like stingers and scorpions. That is a crazy picture, okay? They had their, as their king, the angel of the abyss, his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, his name is Apollyon. The first woe has passed. There are still two more woes to come after this. The sixth angel blew his trumpet. From the four horns of the golden altar that is before God, I heard a voice say to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who were prepared for the hour, day, month, and year were released to kill a third of the human race. The number of mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. This is how I saw the horses and riders in the vision. They had breastplates that were fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. The heads of the horses were like the heads of the lions, and from their mouth came fire, smoke, and sulfur. And a third of the human race was killed by these three plagues, by the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur that came from their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails because their tails, which resemble snakes, have heads that inflict injury. The rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. And they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Do you feel blessed yet, church? All right, let's pray as we jump into God's word and unpacking this today. Father, thank you for your word. There is so much here today, so much for us to try to understand, so much for so many images and so many things that, if we're being honest, are a little bit scary sounding. And so today, God, as we dig into your word in Revelation chapters 8 and 9, give us eyes to see what you want us to see here. Give us ears to hear your spirit pointing us towards truth. May we walk out of here today not more confused by scripture, but may we walk out of here today being led by your spirit towards all truth. And may we see you clearly, Jesus, today. These are all the things that we pray in your name, Lord. Amen. Amen. How many people in the room today love a good church sign? Anybody? There are entire social media accounts dedicated to just showing the most ridiculous church signs. And we don't have time because there's a lot of scripture to get to today, but you can do a search on your, on your own and find some amazing church signs over the years. We've got a good one out there right now. Give to the Lord what is right, not what is left. <laughs> you want to know something funny? As much as I laugh at our church sign sometimes, there are people who have come to our church because of that church sign and it blows my mind. And I'm like, thank you, Lord, that you work even through goofy stuff like that. There's a church sign that I read that said this, many people want to serve God, but only in an advisory capacity. (laughs) Have you ever noticed this before about yourself? You want to tell God what he should do. You exactly know what God should do. I am guilty of it as anyone in this room today. You know, you think back to when you were little and you're in the store and you really want that toy and your parents say no and you go, God, would you just open up their eyes and would you help them to see that I need this toy today? Anybody? Okay. 
Maybe you have a more grown-up example. I'm in parenting mode, so that's where my head's at these days. Maybe you have a more grown-up or serious example, but a situation comes to your mind and you go, God, I know what you should do in this situation. I look at my son who's slowly becoming more and more of a toddler at one and a half, and he has no problem telling me what he thinks I should do. I, I grab him, I say, Bo, do you want to grab some lunch right now? It's time to sit down and eat. And he goes, no, no, play, play. It's time to play. It's not time for lunch, Dad. And I have to lovingly pick my son up and say, we will continue to play after lunch, but it's time to eat right now. And I realize I'm not that different from my son when I read portions of scripture like the one that we approach today. I can read it in times and go, no, no, God. (laughs) Don't do that. Why do you have to do it like that? I don't like it. What is going on? And the passage of scripture that we've read today is one that if many of us are being honest, we may have a word of advice for God on it how he should handle his situations. Why is this even in scripture, we may be wondering. We've got advice for the one who is on the throne. And let's just be upfront this morning about this. Passages like today's are hard to grapple with. Yes, did anyone understand every single word that we read today? If you did, come take my spot and teach the rest of this message this morning. There are some scary sounding things, and I'll be honest, there are times where I don't naturally want to wrestle with passages of scripture like this. Revelation 4 and 5, where God is on the throne and the elders are praising him, sign me up. I'm on board. We get to talk about how God has created everything and how everything is beautiful and all the elders are praising him and it's his world that he's created and he loves it. And so how do we reconcile Revelation 4 and 5 with passages like this one today? where God seems to be bringing justice and judgment in Revelation 8 and 9. Here are three guideposts to help us get started with processing a portion of scripture like this. The first one is this. We have to remember the seriousness of sin and evil. N.T. Wright puts it this way. It's brilliant. Even after a century of war, terror, high-tech genocide, we are still inclined in the Western world at least to pretend to ourselves that the world has really become quite a pleasant place, with evil merely being a blip on the horizon which we can deal with easily enough. However, great contrary to evidence, this modern myth of eradication of evil through enlightenment, leaving only a few minor mopping up operations, preferably in faraway places, before utopia arrives, finally has taken such a hold on popular imagination that any idea of God having to do anything powerful and destructive to address the problem is regarded as far too drastic, far too dramatic. But none of the early Christians, and certainly not Jesus himself, would have colluded with this glossing over of the seriousness of evil. Too often we allow this story into our hearts and into our minds that the world is just generally good, people are just generally good, and the really bad ones, well, we're not the really bad ones. The really bad ones are far away somewhere out there. The problem is it's not accurate. The way one writer puts it, the line between good and evil runs right down the center of each human heart. When we look at scripture, we see what I believe is the most accurate depiction of the human condition, that we were created good on page one, made in the image of God, capable of incredible good, but by page three, we find out that we are also fallen and capable of incredible evil and brokenness. 
Sin has entered the equation, and it's a problem not just for bad people far away, but for each one of us today. Sin is a big deal, no matter how many movies or TV shows try to pitch us the idea that we are so close to utopia. We are so close to it being just a good world. If we all just worked together, we would get there and get rid of all the bad people. That is the story of Babel in Scripture. The story of people coming together, but God sees the wickedness, and he sees that if they were going to come together, guess what? That wickedness was going to be multiplied even more. It doesn't get eradicated. And we don't have to look far today to see that for all of our advances in technology, in medicine, and whatever else you want to measure, that while we have brought much good into the world, they have not fixed our biggest problem. What we do with sin and brokenness and destruction that we can see all around us in the world and what we can see even in our own hearts. So the next time you hear someone say, all we need to do is get rid of so-and-so and Canada would be a utopia. Or if so-and-so was in a position of power, everything would be fixed. Go, no, I've heard that story before. It's not true. And people try to sell you on it. Shake your head and say, I've read my Bible. I know the problem isn't just out there, but it's bigger than all of that. When we struggle to see God bringing justice and judgment, our first problem is often that we underestimate the power of evil and sin in the world today. Second guidepost to help us wrestle with God's love and his judgment is one that we've talked about throughout the course of this series. Do not mistake symbol for reality. Pastor Sean has reminded us throughout Revelation, we are seeing many pictures and many images. One of the pictures that Pastor Sean has talked about is the sevenfold spirit of God. Does that mean that there are seven holy spirits? No. Seven is, an, is a representation of perfectness and perfection. And so what that is saying is that there is a perfect Holy Spirit before the throne of God. And in this passage today, the way that John records his justi- God's justice and judgment coming is stylized in a way that when we talk about one-third being wiped out of all those different things, we are not talking just about one-third as if God has measured it off and done it perfectly. We are talking about God's actions to purify the world. As Pastor Sean has talked about over the last few weeks, when we get closer and closer to the end of Revelation, we see God's kingdom colliding with earth. And we see at the last pages of scripture, a new heaven, a new earth redeemed and made one. And that is a part of what is happening in this passage today. In our backyard, we have a cherry tree. And over our time living here, I it needed some trimming. I haven't trimmed it over the past four years, and so lots of branches on it were dead, a lot of, and the leaves were beginning to grow sparse. It was, the, the, the cherries weren't growing very well, although there were a few raccoons who would disagree with me on that one. And, and so this year, I borrowed a friend's chainsaw, and I started to cut off all those dead branches on our tree. And over the course of this summer, that tree has come to life more leaves than I've ever seen in our four years being here. And the tree is growing and blossoming and thriving. And I think this is a picture of what is similar to what God is doing in these chapters. He is getting serious about the parts of creation that have become dangerously diseased. And he's removing those parts so that the rest may be saved. Don't get me wrong. It is still a radical work. No doubt about that. There is a pile of dead branches in my backyard. They got cut off from the tree. I'm not trying to minimize that. But God is serious about dealing with the brokenness and the systems that we have set up as people to degrade and enslave others. 
And a little bit of watering the tree won't do. There needs to be at some point a major surgery to cut out parts that are continuing to destroy and to harm the rest. And in this passage, we need to focus on the symbols and seek to understand them, not get caught up in just, well, one-third. Am I part of that one-third or am I not part of that one-third? We need to focus on the pictures that God is giving to us and remember what he is trying to teach us through them. The third guidepost that helps us is that God's judgment in this passage is a part of a bigger story. His judgment in this passage, if you only read these portions of scripture, you'd be like, what is this God? This is crazy. I do not understand what is going on. But this is a part of the grand story of God and humanity that we see all throughout scripture from Genesis to the end of Revelation. And to help us unpack that a bit, let's start by looking at the trumpets that we read about today. In the Old Testament, trumpets were connected to a number of ideas and occasions, including judgment, warning, victory, and the last day when there would be a final judgment. Here are a few examples from Scripture. In 1 Kings 1, a trumpet is blasted when a king ascends to his rule. Trumpets declare war in Judges chapters 3 and 7. The day of the Lord in Joel chapter 2 is announced by a trumpet blast. And festivals were announced with trumpet blasts in Numbers 10. And all the Israelites, if you've watched uh, Veggie Tales and you know your story, the Israelites marched around Jericho while they're throwing Slurpees on their heads. And then trumpet blasts before the city falls down. In all of these instances in scripture, there is a strange mix of joy and judgment when the trumpets were being blasted. For the people inside Jericho, it sure felt like judgment. There was nothing good about their city falling. But for Israel, there was a joy to what was happening in that moment. And God's kingdom is breaking in. A new king is coming. And for some who want to hang on to their own kingdoms, this is actually not good news to them. It can seem like judgment. And for those who want to welcome a king, though, welcome King Jesus, there is joy. And for John's original audience of this letter, there was a clear connection to their history as a people, to the history of Israel. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible or you're new to Christianity, the Bible is divided into two parts. There's the Old Testament and then there's the New Testament. And the Old Testament largely tells the story of God and the people of Israel. God calls one family, Abraham's family, and he says, you are blessed to be a blessing to the world and to share who I am with the whole world. And the majority of the story tells about how that family grows and grows and grows and becomes the people of Israel. And these people end up in Egypt at one point in their story, and they're growing so strong and powerful that one day the Pharaoh decides that they're becoming too strong, and he decides to enslave the whole people of Israel. And this Pharaoh is not a good dude. At one point, he orders the killing of all Hebrew male babies so that they would not continue to grow stronger and stronger. And how long do you think this goes on for? 400 years. 400 years of oppression and enslavement. 400 years of brutally working hard under the Egyptian masters. And the people of Israel are calling out, crying out to God to deliver them from this. And if you, if you know the story, God says, I will deliver you by tapping a man named Moses on the shoulder. And he says, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And if you haven't read the story, you can go to Exodus chapter 7 to 12 and find that Pharaoh says no. 
And so God decides to strike the land with 10 plagues to show them the power of God. And all of this culminates with the 10th plague, which is the death of the firstborns of the land. But the people of Israel are spared of this death by sacrificing a lamb and covering their doorposts with the blood of that lamb. If you're new to church and you're like, why do we talk about Jesus' blood so much? This is a part of the story as well. It is steeped in Israel's story. The people are saved and they are delivered by the blood of the lamb over their doorposts and they don't have to worry about the 10th plague and the angel of death coming to their homes. And so when we say we are covered by the blood of the lamb, we are saying God is that for us today. That is what Jesus did for us The people of Israel are saved and God uses Pharaoh's hardness of heart and pride to turn back on him and his own people. And God judges Egypt for their wickedness and idolatry. And all of this is a backstory for the the story that John is telling today. It is in the background of their minds in this story of Revelation. And these trumpets show us that God's judgment in Revelation is being compared to the Exodus story. This is to be understood as a second exodus, and it's heralded by similar plagues as the first exodus. God's judgment in Revelation is a part of a bigger story of how God has dealt with and will deal with evil throughout history. As with the Egyptian plagues, the plagues we find in Revelation punish hardness of heart, idolatry, and persecution of God's people. These are not random pictures They are steeped in history and the story of God and his people. Trumpet one is a plague of hail and fire, and it's a reference to Exodus chapter nine. Trumpet two, a third of the seas are gone, and that's a reference to Exodus chapter seven with the blood and the water and that plague. Trumpet three, the fresh waters were made bitter. Again, this is a link back to the water being turned to blood in Exodus. And trumpet four, there is darkness, which is a link to Exodus chapter 10 and the plague of darkness over the land. And finally, we get to trumpet number five and the, the locusts are re- released, which is a reference back to 10, ex- chapter 10 of Exodus. Now, was anybody else a little bit scared when they heard about those locusts? They got scorpion tails. They're like these crazy demon locusts. It's locusts from Exodus, but they're on a whole nother level here, people. And as a part of tr- uh, trumpet number five, we see that an angel has also fallen and receives the keys to the shaft of the abyss. Now, scholars say that this is likely a reference to Satan falling from heaven, which Jesus talks about in Luke chapter 10. And he has been given the keys to the abyss. Now, what's going on with this? This is so important because Pastor Sean talked to us last week. We have to focus on the word given. God is still in control in this situation. And as we found out in chapter one of Revelation, at the end of the story, Jesus has the keys to hell and death. Satan has these keys, but for a short period of time. And that's what that five-month period is about. That's the normal lifespan of a locust. He has given these keys for a short period of time. This leads us to trumpet number six. Trumpet number six, there is a voice that comes from the golden altar that is before God, linked with the cries of the martyrs and the cries of the saints for deliverance that Pastor Sean talked about last week. And God is answering the prayers of his people. The Exodus story happens as a result of God's people crying out to be delivered from the slavery that they were in. And this story in Revelation continues that same theme. People crying out because of injustice and oppression and God coming to deliver those who are being oppressed. 
the army and the horses and the riders, these are pretty scary pictures. But they are not creatures from earth. The fire and the sulfur is tied to, in Revelation 19 to pictures from hell. And the smoke is characteristic of the abyss as we've seen in chapter 9. And as we get to the end of the sixth trumpet, we go, man, that is a lot of crazy things that have gone on on earth. It would only make sense if people were like, whoa, what is going on? Of course, I'm going to change my mind about the whole situation. But that's not what we find at the end of Revelation chapter 9. We read these words. The rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. And they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immoralities, or their thefts. It's a bit of a downer, isn't it? You see all this stuff happening all around, and it doesn't lead to change. People stay stuck in their ways, just like they were in the Egyptian story. All these plagues happen, and yet they're still stuck in their ways until the, after the 10th plague. And even then, they go back after that 10th plague. And this is where we are left this week, on a cliffhanger. What about that seventh trumpet? What, why are the people not repenting? What about those who are left? And don't worry, if you're excited for some more images like this, we're coming back next week with Revelation 10 and 11. It's going to be great. We'll get to the seventh trumpet. And as we draw to a close of this morning's message, uh, passages like this can be challenging. Passages like this can be like, what is happening? And so I want to explore, what does all this mean for us? All of these trumpets and plagues, what do we walk away from this message with? I, I called this morning's message, judgment and justice and plagues, oh my. <laughs> and so what does all of this mean for us? The first thing that it means for us is that God's judgment is good news. I know this sounds counterintuitive, but what God's judgment says is that he sees injustice in this world and he will do something about it. Just as God has delivered Egypt out of, Israel out of Egypt and slavery, God will one day lead a second exodus where he will set his people free finally once and for all from the slavery of sin and death and evil in this world. And here's how Daryl Johnson puts it. Judgment is good news? Yes, it is, for judgment says God cares. Judgment says we and our choices matter to God. Judgment says God takes sin and evil seriously. Judgment says God is not indifferent to nor tolerant of evil and sin. Judgment says that God moves against evil and sin. On our first reading of chapters 8 and 9, and maybe even if we're being honest, our second and our third reading of these chapters, we may have a word or two for God. We may be like, God, no, not like this. What are you doing? I don't understand this. Don't do that. God, how can you do that? That's too far. We may want to advise the one who is on the throne in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation. But we must remember that God's justice and his judgment is good news. It means that he cares about humanity and his creation, and he will do something about evil in his timing. The second thing that we see is that even in God's justice, there is mercy. Remember the number from today, one-third. It's not two-thirds. It's not everyone and everything being wiped away. 
God chooses to cut away some things. And if we go back to the Exodus story, God is patient before he brings his judgment. He waits 400 years, which how different is that from us today? If we see one person do something online, we go, ugh, did you see what she said? I'm not watching any more of her movies ever again. We rush to judgment, don't we? We rush to cut people off. We rush to just say, that person's done. We're tired of them. They're out of the story. But God waits 400 years in the Exodus story. And that's why when we look around the world today, we can see evil and we can see things and go, God, why are you allowing this to continue? But this is where it's important to remember where we started the year in Exodus 34. God describes himself this way. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not go, let the guilty go unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. All throughout scripture, God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, maintaining love to thousands of generations, but at a specific time in his wisdom, he will say enough injustice and enough evil. And in this story of the Israelites living as slaves in Egypt, I'm sure that 400 years felt like it was way too long for God to wait for them. But God is merciful. And that leads me to the third thing that we can take from this passage about judgment. God's desire is that all people would repent. God longs for people to come back to himself and that is why he is patient. Here's how it's put in 2 Peter. The Lord does not delay his promise as some would understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. If you want to know what God's heart is, that is God's heart in these moments. He wants people to come back to him, to walk away from lives of destruction and death and walk into life and love the way he created and designed for us to do. But God is not going to overrule the free will that he has given to each of us. He's not going to overrule your choices. And if you choose to live a life that oppresses other people, if you choose to gain for yourself at the expense of others, he will allow you to go on that path. He's always going to call you back. He's always going to woo you and want to bring you back into a life of love. But there will be a day where God says enough is enough and he's going to act against evil. He will deliver us just like he delivered Israel from Egypt. Leads me to the fourth thing that we can see from this passage. If you are marked by the blood of the lamb, you have nothing to fear. When you read Revelation 8 and 9, if your first picture that you walk away from it is fear, you're missing the central point of this story. If you are marked by the blood of the lamb, you have nothing to fear. What is going on around you may be scary. I'm not going to say that it's not. It was scary in Egypt when the angel of death passed over, but when they were covered by the blood of that lamb, they did not have to fear. And we can look at the things that are happening all around us and we can freak out trying to predict future stories and go, well, this sounds like it's a helicopter, so that must be the scorpions or helicopters and that's what's going on and is the mark of the beast underneath my bed. And we can start to freak out about these things and get so worked up about wanting, wondering if we've taken on the mark of the beast and we'll get to that in future. But the point is, if you have said yes to following Jesus, you are marked. Amen. You are marked by God. And you don't need to worry. You don't need to have fear. People are all around us having fear, looking, freaking out, wondering if something is the mark of the beast. Guess what? In scripture, it's plain what the mark of the beast is. 
It's something that you choose to take on. You don't have to fear if you have not chosen to take on that mark. If you have chosen to take the mark of Jesus on your foreheads, you do not have anything to fear because you have been marked by the blood of the Lamb. Those demon locusts that we read about in Trumpet 5, they're not touching you. So don't worry. Don't fear. You are covered. That leads me to the last thing that I want us to highlight from this passage today. Your prayers matter. Did you notice that where we started in Revelation chapter 8, the prayers of the people are offered up to God and they are stored in heaven and offered to him. You may wonder, do my prayers go anywhere? Do they do anything? Revelation chapter 8 says yes. No prayer you have uttered has gone unheard. It is stored up in heaven and it is given to God by the angels. Isn't that incredible, church? God is sovereign over all, but in his sovereignty, he has chosen to make the prayers of his people a part of how he exercises his will. Your prayers have the capacity to shape history. Do you believe this, church? Do you believe it? I'm not convinced. (laughs) But guess what? Shameless plug, we have the opportunity to pray tomorrow night. So you got until then to believe it, okay? Come join us tomorrow night to pray at at 6.30. We're going to be praying for our community, praying for more of the Spirit. And this people in this time period who heard this first letter did not have much power, did not have much authority, did not have much wealth, but what they did have was prayer. And their prayers were heard by God and answered. This is where we are at in Revelation chapters 8 and 9, church. I won't lie, these chapters are difficult. (laughs) These chapters have some tough things in them. They're intense and they're packed with pictures that are difficult to wrestle with. But I think that these pictures are actually meant to shake us and to wake us up. They're meant to cause us to pay attention because evil is real and sin is a big deal. The good news for each of us, though, is that through Jesus' death and resurrection, he has dealt a death blow to sin and evil and death, and we are now covered by his blood. Do you believe that today, church? And so we do not have to fear judgment. We do not have to fear justice when we walk under covering of Jesus' blood. And as we get to the end of Revelation and we see a new heaven and a new earth redeemed and becoming one, the good news is that evil, death, disease will have no place in that new creation. That's why God's judgment is good news, church. Let's pray today. Father, I'm mindful of this being a difficult word. A difficult word, especially if we would be in the room today or online and we would not think of ourselves as being covered by the blood of the Lamb. As we talked about today, there is joy and there is also fear in judgment. And so for those in the room today, Lord, who are hearing this word and hearing their their hearts stirred to want to be covered by the Lamb, want to be covered by your blood, I pray that, Lord, today they would not walk out of here with fear because there is a remedy to that fear and his name is Jesus. May we place our hope and our trust in you, Lord, so that we do not have to fear. We do not have to be worried about the mark of the beast on us because you have sealed us and you have covered us. And so today, Lord, as we go out throughout the rest of our day, may we reflect on these difficult words. May we reflect on portions of scripture that we would rather skip over if we're being honest. 
And may we still see your hand and your goodness at work, even in difficult passages like this one. God, you are good, and we are grateful for your incredible love and even for your justice and judgment today. In your name we pray all these things, Jesus. Amen. Well, church, if uh, you're in the room today, and as I was praying that, that is you. You want to be covered by Jesus' blood. You don't want to walk in your own strength anymore. You want to say, I want Jesus to cover me. I encourage you, text the word LIFE to 250-478-7113. One of our pastors would love to walk with you as you start your journey of following Jesus. Uh, we, uh, we're grateful that you are here today. And if you're brand new, uh, we encourage you to go meet Pastor Josh in the Welcome Center. He'd love to say hi to you. Uh, have an amazing week, church, and we'll be back next week with Revelations chapter 10 and 11.